found every dollar that you invested yielded four to eight dollars to the local economy. So you wanna help lift people out of poverty. Start with water. Start with water and toilets and sanitation and, and hygiene. Imagine investing a million dollars and getting an eight million dollar return. Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord. Fail trying rather than fail watching. Hey, it's Mikey from the Goonies. A podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. I'm Brian Lord, and on the show today, we have the founder and CEO of Charity Water, Scott Harrison, as he shares the story of creating Charity Water, getting rejected by nonprofits around the world, and why he put his biggest failure on the internet. Scott's message and his new book, Thirst, are a challenge to all of us who feel the large world issues are just too big for us. So I started off by asking him how we can confront this fear of not being able to make a change, and if that's a major reason why he's telling the story that he is. I'm trying to get people to reject the apathy uh, that, that so many people do embrace. And, you know, if we had said what could we ever do about the billion people on the planet without access to clean water? There would be no organization. You know, now, now that number, by the way, is 663 million. So it's, it's basically almost halved really? from 1.1 1, 1 billion to 663 million over the last 10 years. Wow. So huge progress has been made. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, this is, this is how the world's problems get solved is by individual people, you know, charity water, um, we could talk about this later. It's really the story of a million individuals from a hundred countries that have said, I can do something about this. Not on my watch are people drinking disgusting water and, and dying um, if we know how to help them. Help them. Now, you have a, a personally an amazing story. Like, I, I love the story. Um, can you give us, and we'll talk about a lot of the heroes, it, but part of it, obviously, the story of Charity Water, everything else starts, starts with you, with your story. Um, can you take us back and maybe just give us Give us your story of yeah. how this came to be and, and kind of where you came from. Well, I was a prodigal son. I mean, it's it, almost living out that biblical parable. Uh, I, I was the good son growing up, uh, only child in a middle-class family in Philadelphia, outside of Philadelphia later. When I was four, my mom got really ill. There was a carbon monoxide gas leak in our house that almost killed our whole family. It wound up irreparably damaging and destroying her immune system. My dad and I actually bounced back with our health. And, uh, you know, at a, at a very young age, I was thrust into a caregiver role and did the cooking, did the cleaning, helped, helped mom just live. And I was like, you actually good. had to go through like a clean room. Like you had your yeah, own like a safe like, room. A oh, it was weird. I mean, room. I write about like tinfoil and my mom was allergic to the ink from books and radio waves. And it was, it was a weird, weird childhood. Um, but my parents had a deep and, and authentic Christian faith and they took me to church and I wound up playing piano every Sunday in church. And then at 18, just gave it all the finger. I mean, church, God, morality, parents said, now it's my turn. And I moved to New York City and, and began to pursue, you know, the life of sex, drugs, and rock and roll and uh, wound, wound up becoming a nightclub promoter. Realized, well, if you're going to rebel, you should rebel in style at least. <laughs> right? I, I couldn't believe there was this actual job where I could get paid to professionally drink in public. I would get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to just drink booze in public and and fill up nightclubs full of beautiful people. And over the next 10 years, you know, worked at 40 different nightclubs 
in New York City, really on, on the high end. And while my life looked pretty glamorous from the outside, um, dating, you know, the girls on the cover of fashion magazines, driving the BMW, uh, wearing the stupid Rolex, you know, the, the grand piano in my New York City apartment, all these, all these little markers of success that I'd been collecting. Um, on the inside, I was morally bankrupt. I was spiritually bankrupt. I'd come so far from home, you know, from that foundation of virtue, uh, from the little kid who was taking care of his mom, playing by the rules and trying to care about others. And I, I had this realization. Uh, it involved um, a party town in Uruguay, a lot of drugs, uh, a bouncer with a gun. I mean, there was this whole period of time um, where a lot of things happened that caused me to really take a deep look at my life and ask myself the question, what would the opposite of my life look like? What would the 180 degree turn, uh, you know, not the pivot, not the 25 or the 50 degree turn, like what would it look like to walk so far in the other direction that my life would be unrecognizable? from its current state. And that led me to apply to a bunch of famous humanitarian organizations that I'd heard of over the years. None of them would take me. And that was one of my favorite parts. Oh, the like, rejection letters, yeah. The, you're, you're like, I'm, I, was, I was too honest about myself. I, I mean, you know, come on, how would a nightclub promoter be useful to a serious, credible <laughs> humanitarian organization? I kind of can't blame them. But, but, you know, thankfully one organization said, look, Scott, if you're willing to live in post-war Liberia on a giant hospital ship and pay us $500 a month, you can volunteer. <laughs> I'm like, this is perfect. I mean, what would be more opposite than actually going broke volunteering? Uh, at that time, Liberia was actually the poorest country in the world. And that began a, a whole new you know, life change, a whole new journey for me. And I walked away from the smoking and the, um, the coking and the gambling and you know, the pornography and all the addictions that I had. And really felt like at 28 years old, I got to turn a page and start over, like a redo. Like I got to just start life completely over uh, in, a, in a new context, in a new community, in a community of people that were uh, doctors and nurses who were serving the poor, uh, using their gifts to bring medical care to people in need. And I had this extraordinary volunteer job as a photojournalist where I got to document um, all of this intense suffering and despair and sickness, but also this hope and this health and this healing that was happening, One transformation. Thing, and I love mentors, and you have a great men. You have a lot of mentors throughout your story. Tell me about the the mentor. Yeah, Doctor Gary. Like yeah, I mean, I think the first one was uh, this amazing uh, medical officer, and and maybe what what was great about the story. You know, now now obviously looking back on this stuff, it has a different perspective or a different tone, but he. He had done something not dissimilar to me. In fact, he had signed up for a shorter term. He was a plastic surgeon in California and said, well, maybe I could do three months and let me just go and serve and do a, a volunteer mission for three months. And when I joined the mission for my one year sign up, he had been there 21 years. <laughs> so his three months turned into 20, two decades of service. He just never went back to his practice. He never went back to making money and and operating on, you know, I don't know, plastic surgeon in, in California. So I had this amazing, uh, committed, tenacious doctor who was the chief medical officer. And he was the one that eventually really encouraged me to focus on water because I, I had seen so many problems 
in West Africa, I wanted to fix them all. You know, hunger and healthcare issues and water and uh, trafficking, all these. Yeah, I, I was going to do it all. And he's like, why don't you just focus on one? Why don't you start with one? And water happened to be the one that, that I started with. So he was so instrumental. Um, I should say, you know, I've been at Charity Water now uh, 12 years. He's still there. Oh, wow. He's in decade three. He's, he's what, I guess he's been there 33, 34 years. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. And, and just having those people that you can see. Uh, and you're still a young guy. I looked, I did find out reading the book, I'm like three weeks older than you. So I can call okay. you a young guy. I'm okay, excited great. about that. But, uh, you know, doing all these things that Your hair's age, not gray, though. I've got some. I've got happen? some. Okay. We adopted twins, went, and that turned your hair gray really yeah. fast. And and obviously, you've done so much I stuff. I went gray at 30. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, you know, and what kind of took you from there? From that, I know the, the um, you know, your mentor there, Gary, and then also, you know, hearing some, overhearing some doctors say like half the health problems yeah. are a result of, or maybe even over half are a result of the water. Yeah. What what went from that idea of of working on that ship, being the photographer, um, you know, having this completely different lifestyle from clubs in New York to to being on the west coast of Africa, where did that idea sort of germinate into what became Charity Water? Well, I was I was in a context of doctors and nurses and surgeons, so I was in this healthcare context. And um, just for comparison, at the time, post war Liberia had one one doctor for every fifty thousand people living there. So in America, we have a doctor, I think, for every 100, maybe 280 of us or to every 300 of us. So imagine, yeah, there, I remember there were two surgeons in the country, but nowhere to operate. There was no electricity in the country, no running water, no, no facilities. 14 years of civil war had just uh, devastated all of Liberia. So I, I had this, my job was actually documenting the before and after photos of these patients going through procedures. So I was seeing massive facial tumors. I was seeing people whose faces had been eaten away by flesh-eating disease, seeing leprosy, seeing burns. You know, often the rebels would pour hot oil on the children, trying to fuse their body parts together for fun. Mm. And, and we, would, we would try and release these, um, these, these body parts, you know, the burn contractures. So I was seeing all of these medical uh, ailments and then um, the responses to it. But then as I went out into the villages, I saw the water that people were drinking and they were drinking from disgusting, green, brown, viscous, contaminated swamps. And there's no other way to put it. Swamps, uh, ponds, and this is water so dirty we wouldn't let our animals drink it. You know, if you saw your dog walking up to one of these water sources, you would you know, yank the chain you know, on his neck and say, get away from there. Yeah. But yet half the country was drinking contaminated water. So I, I just didn't have to be that bright to put these two <laughs> things together and say, wow, a lot of people in this country are really, really sick. 50% of the people are drinking dirty, contaminated, diseased water. If I really care about healthcare, why not go work on the bigger problem? Why not go work on the root cause of so much of this sickness? So I just landed on water by way of health and by way of the statistic at the time that a billion people on the planet, one out of every seven human beings was drinking disgusting water. And because I'd been born in a middle-class family in Philadelphia, even though I had a tough childhood, I certainly didn't have to ever walk five hours for dirty water. You know, I, I, never, I never saw someone die of bilharzia or cholera or schistosomiasis or some of these terrible diseases. So I, I came back after the two years, one year turned into two, and I came back to New York City at 30 years old, completely changed by the experience, by what I had seen. And 
with a mission. Okay, I'm going to try and bring clean drinking water to every single human being on earth. Because it's crazy that people don't have water. I mean, in an age of affluence of trillions of dollars just sitting around in bank accounts and 401ks and, you know, gold bars, right? In an age of technology and internet balloons, people don't have water. I mean, someone has to do something about this. (laughs) Yeah. It's still crazy to think about this. People don't have water. One out of every 10 people right now on this planet is drinking water that could kill them right now. As we sit here, you know, with, with bottled water around us that we probably don't even need. I'm sure Nashville water is just fine. Yeah. But yet one out of 10 people, because of the conditions where they were born, they've never tasted that. They've actually never tasted clean water. And so you decided to do something. So you're a guy who's been a photographer. You've seen the problem, but you're you're just a nightclub promoter. Yeah. Which amazingly has those skills. Like I, I have like a fraternity brother who he was a guy who used to take everyone to the strip clubs. And then he used that organizational ability to take people and round them up and take them to Bible studies. Oh, wow. That's, I want to meet that guy. Even <laughs> darker than my story. It's, wow. But but with you, you're somebody... I would go to strip clubs at the time, but I never actually took people there. Oh, yeah. I mean, no, well, he's, a, he's an organizer. Uh, but uh, anyway, so... Good for him. Getting yeah, out of it. yeah. And it's, it's amazing how you can use those skills that were sure. from one thing to something else. So you have these really unique skills and you decided to create a really unique charity. Yeah. So on paper, right, I'm, I'm uniquely unqualified to ever start a charity that would have any sort of impact, let alone a, you know, a, a global impact. Um, but as you said, in other ways, I'm uniquely qualified because I knew how to tell stories and I knew how to promote. So I had been promoting the Velvet Rope for 10 years. I'd been promoting 40 different clubs and trying to create a sense of mystery and exclusivity. And I'd been saying to people, if you get into our club, if you make your way past the doorman and the bouncers and the Velvet Rope, if you are chosen, then you can come inside and you can spend $20 on a cocktail or $10 on a bottle of water or $500 on a bottle of champagne and your life will have meaning. You have arrived. (laughs) Right, I mean that is a, that is a skill set of telling a story and promoting an idea and inviting people to a party. So when I started Charity Water, uh, I started inviting people to a very different party. This would be a party of redemption, of compassion, of generosity. This would be a party where people are invited to use their resources to end the needless suffering of. Uh, at the time, a billion, now 660 million, uh, of the endless suffering of people around the world who didn't have clean water. And as I started inviting people into that, I realized this isn't going to be easy because people don't trust charities. There's a huge cynicism and a disenchantment out there with institutional philanthropy and charities. And I just kept hearing excuse after excuse. Oh, charities are black holes. I don't know where my money is going. Oh, charity CEOs pay themselves millions of dollars and they hire their cousins and nephews and nieces and everybody seemed to have some sort of scandal they could pull out of their back pocket as an excuse for not giving. So I I thought, all right, well, if the mission is going to be to bring clean water to everybody on this planet, um, we're going to need to create a unique, a completely different construct. We're going to need to reimagine what charity means for these people, if we want to get them to actually give. And I just had a couple very simple ideas that turned out to, to work and to bring a lot of those people back to the table. And the first was, well, what if we could make a promise to people that 100% of their money, whether they gave $1 or $100 or a million dollars, 100% of whatever they gave would go directly to fund clean water projects that got people clean water. And I just opened up a second separate bank account for overhead. 
said, the, the public, they will never pay for overhead. We are somehow going to go figure out how to get a very small group of donors passionate about paying for overhead. We're going to make overhead sexy. I don't know how we're going to do that, <laughs> but we're going to make it cool to pay for the office and the, the Epson copy machine toner, right? The flights, the office bill, the insurance, the directors and officers, like all that stuff. We're, we're going to make that a compelling argument to a small group somehow. But for the public, that's not their problem. 100% of what they give will go. And, and then the second big idea was just, well, could we use technology that was available and, and rapidly progressing to connect donors with where their money went and the impact of those gifts. And I remember at first, it was as simple as just putting up every Charity Water project on Google Maps. I mean, it was as simple, Brian, as going to Best Buy and buying a bunch of $50 Garmin handheld GPS devices Mm -hmm. that you turn on next to a well and you take a picture of it and you take a picture of the well and then you upload it. And now you have a satellite image of the project, you know, if your family did it, I could say, hey, Brian, you know, here's the Lord family well, and it's in Malawi, or here's the rainwater harvesting system that you funded in India, or the biosand filter that you funded in Cambodia. So this idea of proof and connecting donors in in this closed loop to where their money went and what it accomplished became the second pillar. Third was just to try and build a beautiful and imaginative and inspiring brand that told stories of hope and opportunity and didn't guilt and shame people into giving. I mean, so many, so many charities really use guilt and shame. And we, we, it's like the poverty porn, right? Some of those, <laughs> the vestiges from the, the TV commercials in the 80s and 90s where kids with very sad eyes and flies all over their face, you know, look up in slow motion, lock eyes with the camera, the 800 number stripes, and people throw up their hands and you know, say, ah, I feel terrible. And the, the best brands in the world, look at Nike, look at Apple, look at, I don't know, Virgin. I mean, th- these aren't shame and guilt-based brands. They are inspiring people. You know, if Nike were a, a, a traditional, you know, guilty type charity, it would be as if they marketed to America and said, look, America, boy, you are ugly. Boy, <laughs> you are fat. Wow, you're lazy. Why don't you turn off that stupid television? Why don't you put away those Doritos? Go for a run, huh, you lazy bum? <laughs> and nobody would respond to that, right? Certainly no one's going to go buy their sneakers or wear that symbol of, of an organization that would speak to them in a demeaning way or, or make them feel shameful or guilty. And actually, Nike has done the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, they have told stories of people overcoming adversity, you know, achieving the impossible. Nike believes that if you don't have legs, you can complete a marathon. You, know, you don't have an arm, you should be playing basketball mm-hmm. and achieving. And, like, and, and, and something inside people says, well, maybe there is greatness inside me. Maybe I actually can rise the Maybe I should turn off the TV. Maybe I should try the run. And then they want to wear the symbol of a company that speaks to them or calls forth greatness within them. So I wanted Charity Water to have that feel and our brand to be based um, – you know, in, in hope and these stories of positivity, you know, effectively inviting people to a party, the party where people are finding their lives transformed through clean water. And uh, that was kind of third. And then the fourth was just working with local partners. And I just thought nobody with my skin color should be running around Africa drilling a well. 
Yeah. Uh, I, I could help be an advocate. I could learn. I could ask questions. I could, I could be a spokesperson or an ambassador for the voiceless. But the work for it to be sustainable had to be led by the locals in each of these communities. So our role, let's raise awareness. Let's raise a lot of money. Let's deploy it efficiently. But the locals are going to be the ones drilling the wells, digging the bio sand filters, constructing the rainwater harvesting systems. They are getting the credit. Um, they're leading their communities and their countries forward. So we just put these four things together, which sounds so basic, like give away 100% of the money, just tell people what you did with the money, build a hopeful brand, and work with local partners. And for some reason, this felt so different to everybody at the time that that people started to give, and they started to give millions and millions of dollars. One of the things that really struck me as a leader is that you were willing to put on video failure. Yeah. Like one of your biggest videos ever was on failure. What What's yeah. that story and what? why did you decide to do that? Well, transparency is just a value of the organization. And I almost, I almost feel like now um, there's almost this, <laughs> someone said the other day, failure porn, which I thought, oh, that kind of <laughs> resonates. You know? People are almost overly celebrating failure. Like we don't, it, it sucks to fail. Yeah. Like we don't want to fail. Yeah. But we, we had a situation where um, we'd raised a bunch of money for a well and deep in the Central African Republic. And we had told this phenomenal story about the Bayaka Pygmy tribe. And there was this local uh, organization that had been trying for years to serve them. And there was this village called Mwale. And they'd, been, they'd never had clean water their whole life. And the, the, the Bayaka living in that village were being oppressed by the tall Central Africans. And it was just multi-layered, multi-dimensional story. And they needed water, and there'd been two failed attempts. So we raise a bunch of money. Charity like Water is going to come years. in. Over 17 yeah. years. Yeah. Two or three failed attempts where yeah. people would come in, tried to dig a well first, ran out of oxygen, no water, tried to dig deeper, you know, with an oxygen, but didn't, came in with a rig, couldn't find water. So we were coming in. We're going to save the day. Our donors, you know, are all going to crowdfund this well. And, and we, we actually thought we had a really good shot. So we brought in a brand new drilling rig that could go very deep. And after about three days, oh, and oh, I promised all the donors, we're going to live broadcast. <laughs> you know, we're taking satellite units and cameras out there, and we're going to broadcast our success on our anniversary, which also happens to be my birthday. So yeah. we just, this is, everybody's waiting. They've given their money. You know, this is awesome. We're going to see the Bayaka clapping, dancing, celebrating. Water's going to be splashing. Kids are going to be soaking wet, right? So we set this whole thing up. We don't find water. Uh, we drill two or three holes, quicksand. The the wells just continued to collapse. And we wind up leaving the community with no clean water. Third or fourth failed attempt. And the the decision we had to make was, well, what do we tell everybody? And I'm like, let's just share the video of the wells collapsing and of our drilling rigs leaving as hundreds of people are standing around, you know, many of them just weeping, many of them looking, um, you know, like they've been let down. The false hope was given yet again. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we made this, this, what I think was a pretty profound four minute video showing how hard our partners were working, showing they were drilling into the night. They really, really wanted to find water, but we just couldn't. And I said, let's just broadcast it out to, you know, what the quarter of a million people on our list and let's tell the truth because people want to know the truth. Even though effectively we'd lit their money on fire with that specific well, I said, we're going to keep trying and we'll, we'll try and come back, you know, at another point with more resources. We won't forget about this community. We won't abandon them. And we shared that video and it was, 
you know, it was the most popular video we'd ever done in the history of the organization. And people said, we got your back. We understand um, it doesn't always go well. I mean, we had certainly tried. You know, there, there was no fault in doing our best. It's like, I don't know, you know, the a runner who maybe, you know, pulls a muscle or something in the final of the marathon. Like, well, they tried, and, you know, they're, yeah. they're as disappointed about that, all their fans, their family. But, you know, you're not going to write the runner off, right? You're going to say, you're going to go get them next time. You're going to try harder. You're going to heal, and you're going to get back out there, and you're going to get that gold medal. So we, we, we found that our whole community came around us in this um, hard-earned failure and eventually we did go back a year later and we did find water. Yeah, I think it was the fifth attempt. Mm -hmm. And we were able to kind of go back and close that loop. But there's a chance that we that we hadn't. And not all the stories have happy endings. Right. Yeah, you know, there's other stories in the book that have um, that have sad endings. I mean, there's a thirteen year old girl living in a village in Ethiopia who was walking eight hours every day. Uh, with 40 pounds of dirty water and a clay pot in her back. And this would cause her to miss school. She lived in a, on a plateau uh, in a town called Meda with about 2,700 people. And the water was at the very bottom of the steep ravine. So she'd, you know, haul this pot all the way down. She'd wait for the water. The water was disgusting as it was. She'd haul it all the way up the mountain. And one day after the end of all that, she hauls it up the mountain. And kind of at the, the ridge of the mountain, she slips and falls and she breaks her clay pot. So she watches this valuable asset of the family destroyed. She watches all the water spill out into the dust and she hangs herself from a tree. So the oh, elders wow. find this 13 year old girl's body swinging from the branch of a tree with a noose around her neck. She was done. She was not going back for water any more times. That story doesn't have a happy ending. Right. I visited her grave. I walked in her footsteps. I, um, I stood next to that tree. Um, she's gone. You know, she, she died and, uh, you know, the, what I remember this, this had happened 10 years before I, I lived in that village and <laughs> her mom, the, the elders were saying, well, her death didn't even change anything for us. I mean, she just died in complete obscurity. Yeah. We didn't get water after she died. The women didn't stop walking. Nothing changed. I mean, I think what that story did for me was I came back really angry. I mean, I think often it's so difficult to connect people to these global problems. You know, we talked about that a little in the beginning. 663 million people. I mean, it's twice the population of, the America, uh, of America. It's just these numbers are, are impossible to connect with. And when I went to that village, you know, I specifically wanted to capture the image of the tree. I thought that that image might actually, if, if people saw it and they knew the story, it might actually move them. It might disrupt them. Um, that's one. She was one of the 663 million people. And I also thought it could get a bunch of people um, who might not agree on anything else to agree, hey, kids shouldn't be hanging themselves from trees because they yeah. spilled their water. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we have children. Like, uh, accidents happen all the time. I mean, my, you know, kitchen floors smeared with, you know, rancid milk, you know, and <laughs> raisins and cracker. I mean, this not on our watch, right? I would hope that that story was really going to catalyze people and and get them to maybe um, embrace action um, instead of apathy. And so when we do that, um, you know, we're we're intentional about telling a story, saying, "Look, this is this is the reality." You know, she was not a statistic. She was she was a girl, a little girl. She had hopes and dreams, and she wanted to be a doctor one day to bring healthcare into her village. Yeah. Um, but she she never got that chance. So. Um, you know, so if you have Letta Kiros on one end of the spectrum and 
you know, a story of despair and extreme poverty and just desperation. Um, on the other end is this woman named Helen Appio, who you mentioned from northern Uganda. And she got clean water for the first time. So her story had a happy ending. And we were able to drill a well in her village. And, and she, like Leda Kiros, had been walking a long distance for water, um, carrying 10 gallons, so about 80 pounds every day of water. Um, for us, about four toilet flushes mm-hmm. were the water. And then and every day she would have to make these decisions. Okay, got a little bit of water. What do I do with it? Cooking, cleaning, drinking, washing my husband's clothes, washing my husband's body. How about my kids? Keep them clean, you know, keep their their bodies clean, keep their school uniforms clean. And she said, you know, as a Ugandan woman, I always put my family first. I, I didn't use the water for myself because it was never enough. And she told our team, she said, you know, now that there's water in my village, now that I have all the water that I need, she says, now I am beautiful. And I remember we were like, of course, Helen, you're a beautiful woman. What do you mean? She said, no, I don't think you understand. You know, for the first time in my life, I feel beautiful because I can wash my face and my body and my clothes. And, you know, she said, now I'm looking so smart. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, we often get lost, even ourselves, in talking about the data behind the impact of clean water. Water means health. Water means education. Water gives millions of hours back to women. But water restored dignity to this woman. Water made this wife, this mother feel beautiful because she was clean. And, you know, that, that's, that's why we do what we do. And, and knowing that we've been able to, you know, now help eight and a half million people around the world get clean water. I mean, that is, that's what keeps us going. It's the, it's the after. It's not, it's the before that motivates us to get off our butts and work hard and to um, call people, invite them to action. But it's the after. It's, it's all about that. I mean, that's the picture of, you know, of heaven. You know, if, if you believe in heaven, that, you know, that a woman is radiant is not walking, is, is able to provide for her family, feels clean, feels beautiful. You know, that's, that's what we're all going for. And that's such a huge thing, not just the beauty of it, um, but also that it, this makes a huge impact for women yeah. specifically. Almost only. Almost only. I mean, so I've been to 69 countries now. I've been to many of them multiple times. I've been to Ethiopia 30 separate times now since starting this org. And um, I just don't see men ever get water. I mean, culturally, whether you are in sub-Saharan Africa or India or Southeast Asia or Central and South America, it, it, it falls on the women and the girls. The role culturally falls on the women and the girls to go get the water. The men, at, at best, they're farming. They're providing for the family. Um, at, at worst, maybe they're drinking. But it's the women that are, are getting the water. And it's the women that are getting attacked by hyenas on these walks. It's the women that are getting raped um, it's the girls that are afraid of crocodiles as they walk into some of these brown viscous rivers to, to get dirty, contaminated water. So when we're able to bring clean drinking water into the villages, we hear unbelievable stories of not only improved health, but what the women do with that extra time. So for the girls, it means they can actually get educated. And so many girls are not in school because it's their job to walk for water. So when they don't have to walk for water anymore, they're actually, they can go to school. And the women, you know, will start small businesses. They'll sell rice at the market. They'll sell peanuts at the market. They will sell rugs. They can earn an income. I mean, imagine getting, let's just, let's go conservative. Let's say you're walking five hours a day for water. 
But it's not Monday through Friday, it's seven days a week. Mm. So imagine someone snaps their fingers and you now have 35 free hours every week that you don't have to do this mundane task. And by the way, you were getting water that wasn't even helpful. Yeah. <laughs> so you're working 35 hours, but not even for clean water. You know, so foreign to us, right? We, we, we can't imagine water not within, I don't know, 20 steps of us in any given moment. But imagine if you were walking five hours and then you weren't even walking to a clean source, you were walking to a river. So we find that when we're able to give this time back to the women and the girls, um, amazing things happen. There was a 88-page report that came out of the United Nations that actually uh, it looked in depth at the economic benefits or the economic impact of clean water and sanitation. And they found every dollar that you invested yielded four to eight dollars mm. to the local economy. So you want to help lift people out of poverty, start with water. Start with water and toilets and sanitation and, and, and hygiene. Imagine investing a million dollars and getting an $8 million return. And it's not just big, rich people who are making a difference through that. Yeah. It's, it's young people. It's um, you know kids that are going out and, and donating, donating their, their birthdays. birthdays. Yeah. And, uh, and I love the story. I mean, it's a tough story, but it's an amazing story of that, the little girl, Rachel. Yeah, so one of, the, one of the things Charity Water has done is invited people to uh, cancel their birthday effectively. Donate their birthday. We want your birthday. Give us your birthday. You don't need any more crap, okay? You don't need birthday gifts. You don't need to throw yourself a party. And what if we invited people to turn their birthday into these redemptive giving moments where our birthdays could help others get clean drinking water? And we said, look, most of your friends don't even know what to get you anyway. They don't want to buy you an Amazon gift card or you know, a Target, whatever. They, they would love to give clean water to human beings in your name especially if they knew that 100% of the money was going straight to the cause, and especially if they could actually see the tangible proof of where that money went. So we, we launched this movement uh, of birthdays uh, 11 years ago, and we, we thought the sticky idea would be to get people to ask for their age in dollars. So I kicked this thing off by asking everyone to donate $32 for my 32nd birthday and promised that 100% of the money would go, and I wound up raising a lot of money. And a seven-year-old kid in Austin, Texas, soon after that, starts knocking on doors saying, um, I'm turning seven, I want seven bucks for my birthday. And he lived in a nice neighborhood. <laughs> kid raised $22,000 for his seventh birthday. And then an 89-year-old lady named Nona Ween, she donates her birthday and she says, hey, I'm turning 89, I've been blessed. I wanna make 89 possible for more people around the world, just the, the, the possibility of living that long. And she realized, of course, she'd been born into privilege. She'd been born into a healthcare system. She'd been born into a world where water was the norm, clean water was the norm. And if her birthday could help people have more birthdays, and that's what she wanted to do for her 89th. So this movement of birthdays just starts to spread around the country. And I was up at a church in Seattle uh, it was a, it was a crazy story. This church wanted to show the community that they were doing clean water with no strings attached. So they picked us because we're actually not a religious organization at all. And uh, they threw a big keg party for the town. They wound up raising <laughs> half a million dollars. Holy cow! As like wow. this town in Seattle, like okay, cool, we can get behind clean drinking water. So I go out there to thank the church and their community and make a speech. And at the end of my speech, I said, um, "Look, I uh, I challenge everybody in this audience: donate your next birthday." And there's a little girl in the audience named Rachel Beckwith, and she was eight. She was about to turn nine. She donates her birthday. She sets a goal of $300, which would get 10 people clean water. And she uh, you know, forgoes the, the gifts and, and cancels her birthday party. 
she raises $220. So she tells her parents, uh, her, her mom, she's like, look, I'm really bummed. Like I actually didn't achieve my goal. I'm going to try harder next year. Well, sadly, um, a couple weeks after her birthday, she's killed. There's a terrible car crash. There was a 20-car pileup. She's the only fatality uh, on the highway. And I, I was in Africa at the time. And when I landed, I got a, a text from her pastor saying, look, um, the family wants to open up her campaign and honor her last wish. And, you know, just if you stop there for a second, I mean, this is a girl whose wish was for kids drinking dirty water that she'd never met thousands of miles away across an ocean in countries she'd never even heard of before. She wanted them to get clean water. She wanted them to benefit instead of herself to benefit from a party or from from the toys or the gifts she could have gotten. And and he said, look, I, I'm going to get everybody in my church to donate nine bucks. I mean, we, that's the least I can do. So, you know, the nine start coming in and this story of this amazing little girl starts to spread beyond the walls of the church and through the Seattle community, starts spreading around the country, starts spreading into Europe, um, starts spreading down to Africa. And Brian, people in Africa start donating $9. Wow. So she goes from $220 that she saw while she was alive to over $1.3 million. So 31,000 complete strangers gave. They were so moved by her compassion, by her uh, action, that they said, I can give $9 or, or more in her name. And uh, I, I had the opportunity of taking her mom, she, a single mom, and, and the pastor and her grandparents to Ethiopia exactly a year um, to the day of, of her death. And we went village to village to village to village, and we met so many of the people, thousands of the children that got clean water because of Rachel's sacrifice, because of her, her, her heart. And it, it was an amazing experience. You know, I write about that in the book. There was, there was a scene where um, I, I remember the women were coming up to Rachel's mom, falling at her feet saying, you know, we understand your pain. We, we've lost children too. I mean, this is the norm in our society, but your daughter's death actually brought our children life. So, you know, it, there's, again, there was no happy ending for Rachel, um, per se. I mean, she, her life was taken too soon, but she sparked something. I think she disrupted something in 31,000 people that said, wait, I mean, this little girl should care about a party. She should care about the stuff, right? You're supposed to mature into generosity later. What, what's wrong with me? Do I care enough? Am I giving enough? And what was amazing I don't even think I wrote about this in the book, but five years later, we looked at the impact of all the people that had given to Rachel's birthday campaign. And so many of them followed her lead, donated their birthdays. They raised another $2 million. So her impact now, she's helped over 100,000 people get clean water for the first time. I mean, that's, you know, that's five of your local stadium packed full. This is Rachel's legacy. So you've just heard this story about a young girl who gave her birthday to make a huge difference through Charity Water. And Premier, we're so inspired by that, we want to do the same. So starting in January 2019, for our 25th anniversary as a company, our 25th birthday in essence, we are going to donate a well uh, for a community in need on the other side of the world. Definitely go to uh, our website, premierspeakers.com, check it out. And uh, we'd love to have you help out. We'll make sure to have information on the website so that you can join us in doing the same. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. 
To learn more, go to beyondspeak.com because adding the ING was too expensive. For this episode of the Beyond Speaking podcast, your technical director, producer, and head Steelers fan was Eric Woody. Your creative director and part-time leprechaun was Travis Franklin. Brian Lord, your host, executive producer, and specialist in speaking about himself in the third person. Additional thanks to special consultant and the pride of St. Paul, Lauren D. of Dean Associates. Thank you to the incredible voice talents of the muy profundo Robert Borges. Finally, thanks to the premier founder, Dwayne Ward, CEO Sean Hanks, and CIO Chris Yount, simply because you need to thank powerful people. If you've listened this far, you clearly have nothing better to do, so 